A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Emily Nicolas, columnist at Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette, Frenchifier of CanadaLand. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Jesse. Emily, did you hear the one about the Canadian nurses who went to an anti-vax protest last year in Washington on January 6th? What a date to pick. <laughs> hey, there's lots of reasons to go to Washington. I, I, I had no idea about this either and didn't know their names, in fact, until they sued the media for talking about them. We'll get into that. Also, fair trade journalism. It's time to talk about the people who gather our news for us overseas, because sometimes in the process of doing that, they get killed. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Bryn Ossington, Helen Lovekin, Ken Turner, Audra Simpson, Dennis Levesque, Emma Farabee, Randy Walkden, and Geneva. Hi, my name is Geneva. I'm currently based in Toronto and working in the nonprofit sector. I support Canada Land because of its thought-provoking, narrative-style Canadian content that gets me to think a little more critically about the place that I call home. Emily, can I tell you a story? Yes, you can. So there are these three Ontario nurses, uh, these three women. And one of them is a nurse practitioner. The other is a neonatal nurse. And the other is a practical nurse uh, with a home care agency. I hold nurses in very high regard, even before the glorification of healthcare workers. Uh, and by all you know, public indication, of which there was very little, these seem like wonderful people. Uh, before the pandemic, one of them, if you, for some reason, checked out her Instagram account, you'd see some normal stuff, uh, pictures of her kids, uh, diet tips, stuff like that. And then in August of 2020, her account begins to focus on things like skepticism about public health measures. Now, as we roll through this narrative, we get to a point where non-essential travel is 
not allowed between Canada and the U.S. However, in January of 2021, some of these nurses, at least two of them, I'm not sure about the third, they make a trip to the United States, to Washington, D.C. And I want to be very specific here. I am not saying that these nurses stormed the Capitol. There's no reason to believe that they were part of the attempted violent coup of the United States of America. They just happened to be protesting on the same day. And there's, you know, like, like we said, there's nice restaurants in Washington. It's nice to meet your internet buddies in person. I am not saying that they were part of the violent overthrow attempt. They were just protesting along with other members of Global Frontline Nurses, an organization which seeks to, quote, empower healthcare workers who disagree with lockdowns. Then they returned to Canada, and according to the website Vancouver is Awesome, uh, at least one of them takes a foundational role in building the Canadian chapter of Global Frontline Nurses, uh, Canadian Frontline Nurses. And if you go onto the website of Canadian Frontline Nurses, you'll see the photographs of these three nurses. And before January is through, two of these nurses hold a press conference. We're here to stand up for the truth. We're the eyes, the ears, and the heartbeat of hospitals. Many of us have lost our jobs and our licenses are being threatened. We're sharing the truth with you, whatever the cost may be. We were taught in nursing to be critical thinkers, to follow evidence-based best practice, to ask questions, and to advocate for our patients' health. Studies show that the more social and emotional engagement people have, the more resistant they are to viruses. So why on earth are we doing the opposite of what we know to be right? These are crimes against humanity. We shut down the entire world to protect these vulnerable people, and now we're going to inject them with something that might kill them to protect them? Okay, so there you just heard those nurses, uh, two of them, and one of them was actually spreading dangerous misinformation. And uh, as time has moved on, we know how dangerous it is, this idea that the vaccine might kill people from healthcare professionals. This is dangerous and false information. So moving our our narrative along, uh, the regulatory body, the College of Nurses of Ontario, investigates these nurses for professional misconduct. They are fired from their jobs from uh, the various uh, healthcare institutions that they work for. And the Canadian Nurses Association then publishes a media release later last year, and it doesn't name them. It's this general statement disavowing anti-vaxxers in the nursing community. I'll read a bit of it. It says, uh, the reckless views of a handful of discredited people who identify as nurses have aligned in some cases with angry crowds who are putting public health and safety at risk. They have drawn in anti-science, anti-mask, anti-vaccine, anti-public health followers whose beliefs align with theirs. So that's a story of three nurses who I have not named, and I probably would not know their names, if not for the fact that they then sued the Canadian Nurses Association for that statement, which does not name them. They have launched a $1 million libel suit saying that obviously is us you're talking about. And, of course, in suing, they have to identify themselves. And their names are Kristen Nagel, Crystal Pitter, and Sarah Shuginian. And so they are suing the Canadian Nurses Association. And also, uh, there's a a website out in BC that, that named them. And they say in their lawsuit that anybody would know that it's them who's being referred to. And they say that uh, they were subjected to ridicule, hatred, and contempt. 
and they argue that they need to get this million dollars because they have been injured in their feelings, uh, as well as their personal and professional <laughs> reputations. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. It's not the first time that it happens when people kind of out themselves because of a lawsuit, or they're just like, a story about them was about to die, and then they're just bringing him back up again. I don't know if it's completely related, but just last week, it was one of a, a Quebec star who's also suing La Presse for damage because last fall, he was not able to basically continue. He's an actor and he was not able to continue participating in, in certain shows. And he's a TV host, not able to do the next season of that TV show because he's unvaccinated. And now, you know, TV sets are asking for people to be vaccinated on set. And so he's basically suing the price for saying that his vaccination status was disclosed publicly, which is a breach of his privacy. And that, But we had all forgot about that story. And the fact that he's suing them is basically now hurting his reputation even more because he's reminding us that he exists and that he's not vaccinated, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, it's a... <laughs> Like it's a vicious circle. <laughs> you know what? We're, we're, we've come to such a low trust time where if we take these people in good faith at their word, then they don't want publicity. That's that's yeah. why, they're, why they're suing. They didn't want the yeah. attention. They, they didn't want the publicity. Yeah. And yeah. then we can say, well, you you certainly played yourself because now you've Streisand affected it and now we know it's you. But of course, I'm not entirely sure that I can take them in good faith. Maybe they do want the publicity and they're actually just like, you know, weaponizing the, the, the courts and libel law to get coverage like this. And and I don't know. We're at such a, a, a white hot heat of rage against the uh, explicit anti-vaxxers. Mm -hmm. They've been demonized and I'm happy to contribute to that. Uh, I, like I think they are a public menace. That's my personal opinion. But we have raised the temperature on anti-vax sentiment so hot and I think we're blurring and maybe even erasing the line, as I've been talking about on this show, between anti-vax and the unvaccinated. And just to shift our focus a little bit here, you know, I already talked about how I think just completely vulgar and despicable column from Gary Mason in the Globe and Mail saying that, like, if he needs to have knee replacement surgery, an unvaccinated person should have to get in line behind him uh, whose life might be in, in jeopardy. That's not how he put it, but that was the implication of his argument. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then following that, we saw the Toronto Star editorial board say it's time to raise the price for those who still won't get vaccinated. Just the scorn and exhaustion, like, uh, what, who are these people who haven't gotten vaccinated? Reason hasn't worked, they write. Statistics haven't worked. Pleading, begging, scolding, and shaming haven't worked. We need to make them pay, which I thought was just quite a radical thing for a newspaper's editorial board to even suggest. But then your government in Quebec actually did it. You're taxing the unvaxxed. I don't know if he's doing it. He says he wants to do it. And I think, well, this was done during a press conference on Tuesday. Basically, there is no number. There is no mechanism. He's just threw the idea out there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he actually said it. Well, that's an important distinction. And maybe you can help. Quebec is not like there's no tax today if you're unvaxxed. Yeah. It's like uh, saber rattling. And I couldn't help but notice that it came after Macron in France said he's pissed off and he's going to piss off the anti-vaxxers. Like, is this political or they, like can they actually do something like this? It just seems wild to me. 
Is it political? Yes, it is, because in the sense that, you know, trying to punish uh, uh, people who are unvaccinated can, can never be not political. It's very much uh, something that's inspired by public frustration for people who are not vaccinated yet. And that's something that uh, François Legault has been, has been said uh, explicitly. Is that legal? Listen, there's been health tax before. So basically, the mechanism that they're looking at is when you do uh, your taxes uh, is to have a special fee because the government knows, obviously, if you're not vaccinated, it's something that's in your RAMQ, so your health insurance. And so uh, they have that information and they want to charge you a fee uh, if you're not vaccinated, like an extra fee. They say it's going to be significant. That idea that François Legault is floating around is, is new in the sense that it's basically following the private potential logics, which is you're going to be paying differently based on your health condition or prior health condition or something we find in your medical file. And that is, in my opinion, completely in breach of the spirit of the, the healthcare act, which is everybody gets the same service and there is no people paying more or less based on what is their medical condition and what is in their medical file. There's a teacher from the Maritimes who got in touch with me to say that he teaches kids who are of like... We call them vulnerable now. He says we used to just call them poor. And this is like a working class white community by and large in which most of the kids aren't vaccinated because their parents can't take time. There's like no car in the family or one car. And just to get your shit together to get that done is challenging for people, especially when there was not a knock on their door with somebody with a needle. And I don't know why we're not vaccinating these kids in their schools. And I'm sure there's a lot of crossover in the Venn diagram where people who find it difficult to navigate online systems to get their vaccinations or don't have the car or whatever, they get backed into a corner, they get ostracized, the media turns against them, the prime minister turns against them, and then some of them become anti-vaxxers, you know? I think it's really interesting that we're at this point still almost two years into this pandemic speculating, and that's only what we're doing, right? Anecdotal evidence and speculating on who exactly the unvaccinated are. I think that's because we've been saying that we make decisions based on science, but somehow... Science excludes social science. Uh We're not even taking the time to do those studies to be like, who exactly are the unvaccinated? How diverse their profiles are? They are such a mixed bag of reasons why people are not getting vaccinated. There are people who've been radicalized. There are people who are skeptical. There are people who are just basically have this uh, positional thing, <laughs> logic going on. If they, if you're, they're being told to do something, they're not going to do it. There's people who've been traumatized by the healthcare system before. Uh, there's people who just don't speak French and English. They haven't been paying attention. There's just so many different profiles in there, and we're not taking the time to have that clear picture before having this conversation on the unvaccinated. And I think it's completely ludicrous that at this point in this pandemic, uh, everybody's writing about the unvaccinated, just speculating on the idea, you know, anecdotes and things they're hearing in their networks. Last fall, when the Quebec government went forward to try to basically have a vaccine mandate for everybody in the healthcare system and then had to back off. Uh, during that period, there were some journalists who took the time to speak to actually mostly nurses who were not vaccinated and get their stories out. So, you know, to go back to our opening uh, story, there was a lot of nurses who basically their profile were something like they've been seeing so many medical mistakes. They've been seeing how... Mm-hmm. You know, private companies ha- do have an influence on some of the way that some mitigations get pushed or not. Uh, basically, they've been inside the system, so they've been seeing the flaws of the system 
And it's because they have so much information on the flaws in the healthcare system uh, that they don't trust it anymore. Just think about, for example, like in politics, when people are canvassing, when people want to win power, they take so much time to have those micro profile of every possible segment of the population that may or may not vote for them. That's how we do campaigns now. The technology to try to have a sense of what's going to push your personal button to go vote for a certain party or avoid to go vote for another party is so, so, so evolved, scarily so. And then for the vaccination campaign, we're acting as if we don't know any of that uh, because that's just, we're, we're just getting frustrated that some of our arrows are not landing while we're shooting in the dark. I also feel like trying to get 100% of the population to do anything is going to be really goddamn hard. And yeah. this relentless drumbeat of these fucking people, these fucking people, these are the ones who are keeping us here. This is why we're all losing our freedoms. This is why all the surgeries are canceled. It's really socially toxic to get a majority so riled up against a small minority of people, especially when I think these those people necessarily are not the best suited to defend themselves against that much scorn. And, and I don't mean to suggest that this is like a media monolith, like, you know, Andre Picard in The Globe, yeah. he was forthright in decrying and denouncing this proposed unvaxxed tax. Uh, he says it's punitive and unhelpful. But I want to read you another thing I read. Uh, this is a piece that was very popular that got published that really, you know, parts of it really resonated with me. And I'm not going to tell you who wrote it just yet or where it was published, because this is the part that actually made sense to me. Quoting from it, we're playing with fire. We are compromising our previously working systems seriously with this unending and unpredictable stream of restrictions, lockdowns, regulations, curfews. We're also undermining our monetary system with the provision of unending largesse from government coffers to ease the stress of the COVID response. We're stopping kids from attending school. We're sowing mistrust in our institutions in a dangerous manner. We're frightening people to make them comply. I've never seen breakdown in institutional trust on this scale before in my lifetime. We're deciding by opinion poll to live in fear and to become increasingly authoritarian in response to that fear. And that really, like, that hit home with me. You know, this idea that we can just press pause on the entire travel industry, that we can, like, change the way people get their income from work to really unpredictable and, and insufficient government supports. There's this, like, dry cleaner alteration shop across from our office, Chinese-Canadian family. That's their family business. I just noticed that, it, it like, it's heartbreaking. They just closed up shop for good. Yeah. And then we just think that we can hit play again and society will go back to normal. We're fucking around with the, with the yeah. basic building blocks, the co of society and hoping that things will work again after we're done. Yeah, but at the same time, in what you read, like the first thing that takes me off and makes me feel very differently about what you said, uh, about, about, about what was read, is that person starts with saying institutions used to work, basically, or something like that. I can't can remember the exact word, you know, like the system used to work and now it's not working anymore. Yeah. And I think that's the basic flaw. And I think that goes to, that goes to my point about we've been listening to scientists uh, but we haven't been listening to actually like social scientists because there's been people doing the research and telling us that the system was already, you know, flawed and was incredibly fragile and had been fragilized in the last decade. And it was just a matter before a crisis hit us and showed us basically that we were just holding on to a bunch of, uh, to, to just a house of cards. I think that's more the analysis that serves us. Just like right now, we do not have a lot of, uh, you know, studies that's been published in the media that is about who the anti-vaxxers are, but there's been social 
natural science for years about anti-vaxxer movements. It's not something that just emerged out of the blue during this pandemic. There's been people resisting public health measures for other things for years, for decades. There's been a lot of people studying the psychology of people who do that. There's been a lot of people studying, you know, cognitive biases and how is it that you cannot have 100% of the population do a certain thing because there's some people who are too marginalized or have, uh, you know, their, their cuts in institutions too deep to be able to be brought back in the fold. This is stuff that we knew before, but when the media, because this is a media criticism show, by the way, <laughs> when the media oh, right. put on, put on the, the science, the scientific expert on, it's always, you know, the frontline doctor or, you know, the epidemiologist or whatnot. But I've rarely seen social scientists on the air explaining us what's happening to us psychologically right now, what's happening to us as a society right now. And why is it that our mental health was so fragile in the first place? And why is it that our institutions who are supposed to take care of the people who are the most vulnerable were so fragile in the first in the first place? And the people who are the most privileged are like, yeah, the system used to work because it used to work for you. And now it's collapsing and I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to react to that. Like, why can't we just go back to what was there before? Not acknowledging that what was there before was incredibly imperfect. And that's why we're here now. Maybe I'm just like a big baby who wants to have his cake and eat it too, because I, I <laughs> like, I, I, at least in terms of what I quoted from that piece, yeah. uh, I agree with the author and I agree with you too, because I feel like our systems didn't serve everybody equally. And, and there's all kinds of things that this pointed out that need to be reformed. And yet I relied on our systems and I, and yes, I, I might be a privileged person who benefited from them in certain specific ways, but all of us kind of rely on public transportation and the travel industry. You know, you're getting into some class territory there, but I think everybody kind of just expects the world that, you know, things like banking to function just in their basic, can you get what you need? Can you get the services you need? For all the flaws of the public school system, they actually allow things to continue every day because there's a place you can put your child while you go to work. When that stops working, everything stops working for some people. Everybody relies on a lot of things. And I think that we're toying around with those things and, and, and hoping that they're there for us at the end of the day. And I do agree with the author of this piece up till that point. But then the author of this piece, whose name is, God forgive me, Dr. Jordan Peterson, then he goes and says, by way of conclusion, enough Canadians, enough masks, enough social gathering limitations, open the damn country back up. Whoa, wait, enough everything? Like, so we have this stupid ass dichotomy where either I have to be mm. like Doug Ford says it's time to close the schools, but doesn't explain why. Okay. Doug Ford says it's time to open up the schools again, but doesn't explain why. Uh, okay. Either I have to eat every single regulation and comply with every limitation of my freedom without complaint. Cause that's what a good citizen does. Or I have to say, fuck it. We're all going to get it anyhow. Let's uh, let's just like take our masks off and go back to life as normal. And I don't care who dies. We're two years into this and we have to choose between those two options. And, and, and that's reflected in the coverage. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people, including Jordan Peterson in that piece, but in like the vast majority of his career, <laughs> who try to like sound rational. But really what's going on in the piece is like a Hulk 
crisis where <laughs> you are getting angry and angry and then you transform yourself into this dumb green monster and you're just trying to destroy everything around you. <laughs> and so I think I think that's what's going on, right? There's just people who are just like holding it in, holding it in, and then just exploding. And by the time they've exploded, there's no nuance to be had. There's no analysis to be done. Striking that right balance uh, between, you know, individual responsibility and institutional responsibility and institutional decision is something that we're getting, I think, more and more away from as uh, it's just so easier when you're exhausted to just blame the person that you can see, the person that you can imagine, which is like that person who's an evil, like anti-vax. I think it's a lot easier for people to do that than to actually, you know, look at like systemic issue and policy. And I think the more people are exhausted, the more scapegoating is going to happen. And we have like, I don't know, like 2000 years of human history to show that exactly what happens usually in times of crisis. It's just like, just scapegoating works. Why? Because it's easier than actually criticizing government in nuanced ways. Oh my God. Oh my God. The Hulk analogy. The part that I left out, Emily, was that the inciting incident for Peterson that made him transform from uh, mild-mannered Dr. Jordan Peterson into the Hulk was being on hold with his bank. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Emily, let's duly note some things that people might uh, might want to pay a little bit more attention to. I wasn't going to duly note something that people need to pay more attention to, just something that I think is funny um, to pay attention to. Yeah, I got, because... a, I got a dumb one too, so <laughs> let, let's do dumb ones today. Okay. Last week, you duly loaded with Nora and the whole Sanguine thing. And yeah. I want to duly note it again because it actually keeps on giving. And I think people in the rest of the country have stopped paying attention. But like it's been, it's still in the new cycle, guys. There has been like all ongoing development 
And it's because basically journalists have now focused the shift from people having been on display, going to Cancun, partying in Cancun, to who organized this trip. Yeah. And so the person who organized this trip, there's now investigative journalism going on to kind of like profile him, trying to see, because he's filthy rich, right? And trying to see where did he get his money from? He's, <laughs> he's buying like million dollar property on the north shore of Montreal, building this <sighs> castle with a statue of himself in front of it. People are like, what the hell is that? He's buying off his neighbors so that he doesn't, he doesn't have neighbors. Uh, he has this business base in Delaware that we've now learned. And so people are like, he's evading taxes. And so it's become this like drama of who this guy is, who used to be named Kevin, who's changed legally to his name to James, apparently in an homage to James Bond. And now we've seen like news article being like, this guy's name after James Bond. What the hell? And so I think it speaks to the zeitgeist of the society right now, how people are so fed up with exactly as worse, I guess, earlier people who are not respecting the rules, that they're now trying to investigate every single person that's not respecting the rule. There have been journalists, uh, you know, showing up at the airport for the few people who've been able to make it back to Canada and trying to, you know, scrum them as if they were like the most <laughs> important people in the world. Those videos of them being scrummed at the airport have gone viral because they're like, I don't regret anything. I don't regret my party. And so, yeah, that's that's like, on top of everything else, that's actually been an ongoing news uh, story, and I think it needs to be flagged. Oh, my God. You know, I know that the whole tone of these stories is I'm supposed to hate them, but, like, I just I just can't hate these bastards. You know, you don't get the heroes that you want. You get the heroes that you deserve. I, I have a lot of feelings about that story because it's, like, people treating the global south as their playground, having no respect for the people there is, like, I think that gets me riled up. But at the same time, the level of scrutiny that's been put on those people is just, I think, speaks more of the general climate that we're in more than it speaks to to the story itself. I mean, there's been so many fake, deep think pieces at while on like the role of influencers in our society and, and whatnot. Is, is is that story? Is the Song Wing Gate the end of influencer marketing? Like it's like is people have gone to, I think, adapt in the story that defies reason. Duly noted. I would like to duly note a follow-up to the ongoing saga of the Rogers family. Oh, okay. Earlier this week, Globe and Mail's uh, Alexandra Posadsky had a... Wow, what an exclusive. Um, she found on the site Cameo, or somehow obtained from the site Cameo, a Cameo clip. You know, Cameo, it's where you can pay... You know, anywhere from 20 bucks to a thousand bucks for a celebrity to do a personalized message. And here is a personalized message that it seems Suzanne Rogers seems to have commissioned for her husband, Edward Rogers. And this is Brian Cox, who plays Logan Roy on the series Succession. Edward, this is from Suzanne. Congratulations on your real life succession at Rogers Communications. And also having Joe Natale. To fuck the fuck off. Well done, Edward. Congratulations. Holy shit. They got Logan Roy <laughs> to co-sign, probably with no clue what the hell he was talking about, because that's how Cameo works. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, the, the first response I saw on Twitter was somebody, R.R. Bula, saying, oh, fuck, do these people think succession is aspirational? 
and I mean, the, obviously, yes, they do. To all the people who are like jokingly saying, oh, the Rogers family seems like the Roys, now we have the Rogers family. Yes, we are like the Roys. It's good to be like the Roys. It's good to be like Logan Roy. That's exactly what this is. And I could feign outrage, Emily, at the lack of taste of Suzanne Rogers uh, and the lack of good form. You know, Joe Natale, outgoing CEO, Edward Rogers was like getting a celebrity to say, fuck off. This is not the way that civilized corporate titans are supposed to uh, to act. And yet I'm just nothing but amused by the lack of by the lack of class and the flattening of the world. If if I can watch, you know, the show Emily in Paris steal the John K. dog shampoo bit, which actually happened, then I should also be able to see Logan Roy referencing a Canadian telecom family drama. <laughs> you should. Duty noted, Jesse. All right. Uh, the last thing I want us to discuss today is a really sad story, but unfortunately, I think an increasingly common one. And, and by way of context, I've been talking a lot about how, as an industry, the Canadian media, I think, has never employed fewer foreign correspondents as like staff members mm -hmm. of news organizations. I think there have never been fewer foreign bureaus. They've been closed up. Even as the CBC's budget has been restored and expanded, we have not seen uh, the, the reinvestment in, in foreign reporting. And increasingly that work is being farmed out. It's being done by freelancers. It's being done by small news organizations, small news organizations that can't afford to send a Canadian to another country. And I think we're also modifying our practices. That's not always the best way to get good foreign correspondence. Uh, yeah. But a, lo a lot of it is economic. You hire, if you are, let's say, covering the situation in Haiti, and especially if you're a small digital news outlet, uh, you will probably hire a local to cover the situation. And that's what happened when a online radio station in Quebec, Radio Écoute FM, based in Montreal, hired a Haitian journalist named John Wesley Amadi to cover uh, specifically a story about the murder of a police captain. And this is a, a journalist who does intrepid work speaking to gang members, uh, reporting from very dangerous scenes. And he and another journalist were killed doing their jobs. We can talk about fair trade coffee. We talk about fair trade in a lot of different industries. I think we need to talk about fair trade journalism. The information that Canadians want, it's a product that we want. Yeah. We want facts. We want information. We want news. Was it produced safely? Was it produced ethically? Were people exploited? Were people endangered? And when something goes wrong... What happens when the CBC failed to claim Michael Toledano, who was filing for the CBC and making a CBC documentary uh, when he was arrested by the RCMP, we at least had solidarity from the journalistic community. But th the further away this gets, you know, it's not a staffer, it's a freelancer. It's not a freelancer, it's not even a Canadian. The supports aren't there, the response isn't there, the money isn't there for this person's family who relied on him. Uh, this is a tragedy, but it's it's one that I just kind of want to like, I want to get into it with you because I feel like it has the highest yeah. likelihood of us just kind of, uh, you know, the Globe and Mail reported on it uh, to their credit from, uh, with a Canadian press story. But it feels like further away from home, but it's not. This is This is somebody who was getting news for us. Yeah, uh, it was somebody who was getting used for us. At the same time, my first way to read this is more to think about citizenship than it is to think about 
journalism in the sense that if a Canadian freelancer was skilled abroad, I think we'd be hearing a lot more about this because it's about a Canadian citizen being killed abroad. Mm -hmm. The citizenship question does come in, in play when you're trying to move from an industry that had a lot of issue in terms of like having usually this white guy who would just like come to a country, be shifting from one country to another every couple of years, uh, not even speaking the language most of the time and just relying on people who were local to do the conversations for them and for him to be like the star kind of like journalist, foreign correspondent, like that model, the fact that this is not the model we're operating with anymore as much, I'm not mad at that. I'm not mad at that. That was a really problematic neocolonial model in many, many ways. Yep. The question is, how do we replace that? What do we replace that with? I like your analogy with, you know, fair trade, because what we do in fair trade, other things, is trying to empower local voices instead. But are they really empowered if they're just basically freelancers and don't have any protections from, for, for the media outlets that they work with? Then is that is that any empowering? Or if it's just, just you know, more of a putting the, the, the labor on people who won't cost as much as the star journalists who used to travel all over the world. And so I think we've moved away from a model that didn't work, but we just haven't figured out what could work instead. And a lot of it has to do, yeah, with privileges attached to, to citizenship more than it has to do with, I think, uh, a problem that's uh, journalism industry specific. I think that it's also something that we overlook because Foreign correspondents might have a pretty skewed view of just how unsafe some of this work is because they're given a wider berth, more more consideration yeah. and safety from locals, more consideration and safety from authorities, from police, than uh, a local fixer who's just there with a microphone or a notebook. Those people are probably facing much more dangerous situations when they don't have the big brand behind them. Yeah, absolutely. But let's be honest also about like what is the main model of replacement of those foreign correspondents that the CBC and others used to send abroad. It's more, I guess, the same model of that, usually white guys, sometimes white women, having that security, living in a five-star hotel, doing doing their work. But it's usually somebody now from Reuters or Agence France Presse or like all of those international, usually a lot of times actually Europe-based people. And that's what you see a lot of the time when you read, for example, Francophone uh, media in Canada is that when you're trying to look at international story, you're just going to have the reprint of whatever the French journalists who still have the money are saying. And it's really funny because the perspective is, you know, really does not sound Canadian at all. But that's what we have. So having local freelancers replacing the the foreign correspondents that Canadian media used to have, I wish actually there was more the situation and, and then we, we would be having conversation about how do we make them more integrated into our media system? How do we protect them better? better? But usually the, the case is just that people have been moving to those uh, international agencies and just like, reprint and you, you will see then the same kind of like media article in like five different newspapers because everybody's just buying the same thing and just have it covered. And that's the international news that we get, which sucks, you know? <laughs> All of that is true when you're talking about what's in mainstream news sources. But this story in particular, which I think reflects another broad trend, is in the vacuum of the deteriorating state of foreign correspondence, what has filled the void? Well, 
it's news organizations that are not big mainstream newspapers. It's like Radio Ekut FM who are serving diaspora communities. So yeah. who actually is hiring a local fixer to go into like gangland territory in Haiti in a very violent circumstance to figure out what's going on? It's a tiny little online news organization. And when we talk about news organizations, digital news organizations, independent news organizations in Canada, I'll admit it's skewed and you get a sense that it's like – it's Canada land, it's the National Observer, it's the Narwhal and, and Ricochet, and, and maybe we talk about the Rebel. But the vast majority of tiny little digital news organizations in Canada are what we used to call the ethnic press, right? Yeah. They're serving audiences that just want to know what is happening in their countries of origin or their parents' or grandparents' countries of origin. Yeah. Like, it's a great place to go fishing for stories because they know shit that nobody yeah. else knows. Like, like that's who's actually doing the work. And, Absolutely. You know, the slain journalist here, uh, Amadi, he did work as a reporter for Radio Akut FM. He did work as a fixer for Al Jazeera, for Vice. And I do wonder if they are involved at all in the fundraising efforts for his family. Mm -hmm. And I'll say this, you know, listeners can, if they want to uh, pitch in, we're going to put a link in the show notes to the GoFundMe uh, to support the families of these murdered Haitian journalists. Anyhow, I don't know what to say about that, except that there's something that is fundamentally shifting in where, how that information is coming into Canada for Canadians about what's going on in the rest of the world. There's a huge fundamental shift as, as to who's doing that work, where that work is being published, and the labor conditions of that work. Yeah. Can I just say as well that, you know, because we've been talking about like different journalists working in different conditions, but there's actually a lot of things that people can do to help protect local journalists, actually, because in this example, if uh, you're working for a big news outlet that's recognized internationally in some political contexts, not necessarily in Haiti in a current situation, but in other places, people will be more careful, right? So like uh, about with a, before threatening you because they know that this can go worldwide and this, this can explode because so basically working for an international media while you're local can be a protection, uh, just like sometimes it's very difficult as a local person to be attacking your own government when you're not living under democracy because you risk, you know, being jailed, which is a lot more complicated diplomatically to do when it's a foreigner doing it, especially when it's a foreigner from like first world passport, basically. And uh, so there's ways in which there's really needed international solidarity there in order to be able to bring some stories to light and reduce the risks for the people who are working on those stories if people with different nationalities are working together. But I don't think that's even like how we're thinking about this. We're not thinking what's the best way to protect people while we're getting as, as many stories as possible. I think the thinking is still like Canadians need to know. If it was actually fair trade journalism, we would be more thinking about how do we protect people and get as many stories out as possible at the same time. Emily, that shortcuts. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. So we're on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. Emily, where can people find you? On Twitter as well. On Facebook, I just created a Facebook page. So you can you can go and like that. And uh, I write in Le Devoir in the Montreal Gazette. Our website is canadaland.com. There's a new episode of The Backbench Up. And there's a conversation about where we're at with the uh, residential school grave sites. And Romeo Saganesh, you know what? Just go listen to it. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by so-called Syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, 
please support us. Click on the link in the show notes. Go to canadaland.com slash join. We're going to send you ad-free versions of our podcasts and other great stuff. It takes moments. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.